Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's podcast. I am delighted to have a man who has a lot of experience in many of the the big banks like HSBC and RBS and um, has an engineering background, a fascinating man, and leadership is in his bones and he's just about to become or he's just become a CEO. And without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, thank you, Jonathan. My name's Stuart Hare. Um, uh, Previously, I've enjoyed executive roles in RBS and HSBC, and we might interrogate whether I really enjoyed all of it, but I definitely enjoyed those roles. Um, And now I've just become the CEO of Skipton Group. And for those that don't know Skipton Group, which will be many of you, it involves a building society, a very well-run building society, alongside the UK's largest chain of estate agencies, um, letting agents, etc., and some really interesting international businesses within the group as well. So it's, I'm hugely excited to get going in that role. Well, Stuart, congratulations. Um, it, it's it's a cracking one. And uh, indeed, I was fortunate to be having a, a, a morning steep uh, sports tissue massage. And the lady I was talking to, I was mentioning that we were going to be doing this. She said, my very first account when I came to this country from Denmark, was with the Skipton Building Society. So please uh, say how impressed I was with uh, the service that they have and the fact that it's a mutual. It always is quite appealing to people, particularly in the age where, as you know, with Fred Goodwin and all that went on, that that um, big finance was seen as, as, as sort of the evil and the greedy and the sort of, I'm gonna get my Ferrari, whatever the impact is on the other people's money, um, whereas I think the whole idea of the Skipton Group is it's much more involving everybody. Uh, any sure. thoughts for you on that? Yeah, I, I, look, I've, I've worked in um, uh, in retail banking virtually all of my life for some of those um, big, ugly banks. Uh, I can assure you retail bankers never managed to escape with a Ferrari. But the, the distrust that people had that their money, their hard-earned savings, was actually working for other people rather than themselves – I think was at the genesis of, of, of the backlash uh, and obviously taxpayers having to bail out, although it's a, that's a little bit abstract for people to understand. What a mutual gives you is that the, the money made within the mutual is exclusively for the use of the members. Now, we as the executive team and the board, um, we can guide and execute against that. And I think, therefore, as you start to think about the mutual model, it's how do we improve society? That has to be the driving metric rather than you know, how do we create a dividend flow um, for shareholders? And I think that 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 bias um, of the way that you think about things allows us to do more longer term good, um, which I'm very excited about as we sort of take on the role. The one other thing I would say, Jonathan, on that is um, the idea in people's mind of a mutual often is around a place like, say, Skipton, whereby it was the people who bought their houses a while back, they'd saved they now owned their house and they were intending um, then to put their money back in the Skipton so other people could buy houses. 
that old-fashioned idea of the mutual now needs modernised. So how we build a modern mutual that benefits broader society is going to be really important. Yeah, and, and I think, as, as you and I were discussing before, the idea of leaders who think about society and longer-term views is is going quite against the flow of the age of the strong man and very dominant alpha male, big dog kind of people making all the decisions. Which brings us on to a conversation that you and I were having before about what to you is inspiring leadership? Because I don't think the likes of the sort of the big, bold, Fred Goodwin, Donald Trump kind of money-making people is what people find inspiring leadership. But what what is inspiring leadership to you? And who would you call out as someone you found as to be an inspiring leader and what qualities did they have? Uh, well, it's, it, it, it's, it's such a complicated question in a way. Sometimes there are circumstances where you need someone who can do a little bit more command and control, where the, where the future is completely uncertain and where people need direction and they're worried or they're anxious then often you do need a degree of direction setting from a leader and then someone that will walk the talk. That said, the attributes of the alpha, whereby it's a sort of almost bullying style, it's a do it my way or, or, or get off the boat type thing, that just has never in my experience ever worked. I don't think humanity works well. It, it tends to, if you work for someone like that, you tend to slip into a sort of child pose uh, and therefore you're subservient at best delinquent at worst against that style of leadership. My The style of leadership I've always enjoyed and therefore I would aspire to try to do is one where the leader's role is kept relatively simple. Um, and I only see three big aspects to leadership. The first one would be helping people be clear about the purpose they're going towards. Simon Sinek talks a lot about purpose, but really that's about why the organization or why the, the entity exists, what's its goals, what does it do, how does it do it, and what part does each individual play? So that bringing that clarity is, is a huge part of a leader's role. The second bit is then building capability. You either have to build a team if it's a new business or adapt a team if it's an existing business, and in both cases, continue to coach and build the capability of the organization. That can be exposing people who... To, to new projects or, or new experiences, or it can be simply the structured training programs, some of which you run, Jonathan, that, that can help leaders become even stronger. And then finally, uh, the last part, once you've built that capability, is really making it fun because people have discretion as to how they use their time, more so now than ever. And so therefore, if you don't make the work environment something people feel as though they're achieving something and they get something back from it, I think that 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 one way trade just isn't going to continue as we move forward. So a little bit more a leader in the style of someone like um, uh, we've talked about this individual before, but David Marquette, that would be someone that I would more aspire to in terms of my own personal experiences. I've enjoyed working with some very, very talented leaders. I would name a couple um, uh, from my time at RBS, Ross McEwen, who's now the CEO at NAB, um, but also um, Brian Hartzer, who was his predecessor at RBS. Both had those 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 talents and those capabilities to get the best out of people. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I love that one, that um, the, the sense of purpose and clarity, the why we're doing what we're doing, that intent, commander's intent in the military, building the capability and then having fun. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you on the having fun. 
of a, of a funny time or something which went really wrong for you, but it was fun. Um, the military often have very dark humor about when things have have gone badly wrong and they and, and it's shocking and it's quite ghastly. Uh, I remember a time someone got their thumb guillotined off in a horse box and it was you could hear <laughs> the person screaming. It was just awful. Uh, it was an early morning uh, uh, rehearsal for the Queen's birthday parade. And and then when the uh, the troop of my friend uh, who was uh, then getting them all to fall out uh, after the parade was over and they'd all been the radio operators who'd heard what's going on and had dealt with getting the ambulance there and all that kind of stuff. And then all the soldiers, as he said, OK, you know, off you go, march off. They all went thumbs up, boss, and they held their hands up without their thumbs tucked away. They got it was just like really bad humor. So, so not politically correct these days. But um, I, I'll come to your perhaps funny story if you could think of any occasion because it's very important for leaders to laugh and have some fun. Gosh, you're, you're so right. But you remind me of uh, my brigade commander when I was chief of staff of 15 Northeast Brigade, uh, Austin Thorpe, and and he was probably one of the army's brightest man but he said let's keep things simple in leadership he said really my job as the leader the brigade commander of i think it was uh 200 people all around the northeast he said is to 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 find and bring in talented leaders to develop them the second stage and then to help them move on to what they're supposed to be doing next and i think this is the bit where sometimes a leader whoever they might be you as the ceo might hang on to someone too long. Now, it's not because of their career transition. In the army, you'd, you had to do a posting two years and you'd move on. But sometimes if they weren't suited to the military, they had to leave. And I think one of the CEOs said to me when I had a dilemma, when I was managing director, he said, John, what is it you know about him now that you'll find out in 12 months time? But you already know it now. I said, I I know he's never going to make it. It's just, it's just, he's toxic. It doesn't suit the organization. So he said, why are you waiting 12 months? Yeah. You need to be firm in the decision that they need to go find their happiness elsewhere. They might be suited to another role completely. And you need to be kind in the execution of how you make that happen so they can leave with dignity. I don't know any thoughts on that. And then I'd love to hear your funny story. Well, it's something that's been front of mind, obviously. Um, coming into any new role, you have to be um, both inquisitive about the organization and I've got you know now a period of learning about Skipton but you also need to be incredibly objective and the objectivity um, is what underpins the questions that you're asking John you know the the, the reality is there may well be people who have um, done an incredible job but the next chapter might not be for them there may not Um, and you have to make those decisions sooner rather than later because if you leave things too long to um, your your brigadier's point or or the person counselling you's point, the 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 reality is you're doing no one any favours. You're prolonging a degree of agony both for yourself, and you may also have just cost the organisation a, a a a period of growth, um, which it would otherwise have got with fresh talent, fresh ideas, you know, fresh momentum into it. So what I also love is the the statement that you made with regard to um, the humanity with which you have to execute that. Mm. Um, Make bold decisions, make them early, but if you don't deliver it with great humanity and humility, with real understanding of the consequence, then then you will find yourself in a different form of trouble. Yeah, you are so right on that. And I think of 
uh, of a couple of examples of what we've just been talking about. One was a group CEO in the financial sector who had a CEO who was quite toxic, a uh, bit of a bullying culture again, alpha male. And, and he said to me, I, I, it's really, I, I need to get rid of them, but yet he's making so much money. And I know money isn't the only objective because, you know, this man did have good integrity, but he said, you know, the impact on the business will be so high. I said, look, you need to do the right thing and you'll actually find that it will unlock a lot of pent up uh, positive energy for people to do things when the, the, the toxic individual goes. So he made the call, uh, did it with good grace, as we discussed. It was quite traumatic. It was a big thing. But he went. And do you know what? Within a short space of time, certainly the second year, you know, in the following year, he made even more because the people were liberated. And and this is the other point, which is many people see you come in, Stuart, as the CEO of the Skipton Group, and they go, is he going to act on X or Y who've actually been dragging their anchor? They've been oxygen thieves. They've been, you know, taking the mickey out of the system. They're not good enough. And no one's calling out their bad behavior or, you know, a bit like some um, we've seen in politics recently with some people in government that, that they're bullying people and they're they're behaving in ways that everybody knew, but no one did anything about it. And so when you do act on it and you pick up what's really going on quite quickly and you remove them, they go, aha, this is great. I'm now prepared to work harder and give my discretionary life energy to the organization because he's taken out the people who we all resented. We were working hard, but they were working against the organization. I don't know whether you've ever seen well, spirit Oh, honestly, I, I, we, 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 we could spend the rest of the podcast on this because this is an area that's very close to my heart. Um, first of all, let me start from the premise that I've not worked in every industry, but every industry I've either consulted to or worked within. Um, the money is made through high quality people, often dealing directly with the customer, supported by great processes or systems or journeys with which they go through. That is the reality, not some giant ego at the top of an organization or even a set of executive egos at the top of an organization. So the thought that one person could, you know, their loss could suddenly be such a high detriment um, uh, with regard to um, uh, the revenue or the, or the organizational profit, I, I don't subscribe to. I've not worked everywhere, but I certainly wouldn't subscribe to that. And really, the big point you're making is a cultural point, which is a statement of what your culture is, is what you do. Um, uh, if you talk about having a nice customer-oriented, empowered culture, but you allow bullies to cultivate their bullying patches, allow cliques to exist, if you allow teams within teams, if you allow behaviours which psychologists would term rackets to unfold within the organisation, then ultimately you will be a victim of that in due course as a leader because it will come back to bite you. How you, how you deal with that and the signals you send will basically talk a lot to not just the company's values, but your personal values. Now, if you go in and have some ceremonial shooting, I wouldn't subscribe to that because that's treating a bullying circumstance with a bullying outcome. Look, I'm a stronger bully than that bully. Um, it's really about making sure that people know why we acted. 
and that they can, for those that perhaps weren't inside on the behaviours, that they can perhaps reconcile themselves to it. Yeah, so true. Um, I want to come on to uh, rackets uh, and just get you to explain to people listening, because I, I have heard about it, but it's, I need my memory jogged again about what people need to spot for that. But I do think of a general who I think for him, he's now dead, will remain nameless. But he uh, had a habit of coming in and firing a couple of people within a week. And uh, he, his idea was that it would sort of it would pour encourages l'idot. You know, it would it would lift everybody else that they need to work harder. It created a bit of a culture of fear, and it, it, it people did work very hard for this person. He was a very big ego, uh, clever man, a bit like sort of Elon Musk. I don't know if you watched the program about Elon Musk and how toxic he is, but yet he's the richest man in the world. So everybody goes, well, you know, perhaps perhaps that's the way to do it. I remember investment Russian investment banker coming to see me and he described the the culture at the place he was in a bulge bracket investment bank and I said yeah those are they sound like they're white collar psychopaths and um he, <laughs> I, I I said uh, he said can you teach me I said yeah I, I can tell you how to no, here's a list this is how to spot them yes yes they have all these qualities and 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 he said I want to be like them I said no no, you don't. He said, no, I do. I said, well, you don't want to be coached by me because I don't want anything to do with that. I am, I'm going to train you how to survive these kind of people and move away from them, but to train you to become like them? And and people go, well, it seems to be the thing that's rewarded. You know, Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, but yet he his behavior and his personal behavior with other people's wives and things like this, you know, you just, you don't want anything to do with it. And And so it is an interesting one is it fair? Often life isn't fair. And some no. of these particularly unpleasant characters get super rich and get to the top of an organization. They're drawn, the psychopaths are drawn to power and money and status. So what about the good guys? How, yeah. how, do, we, how do we get the balance, the good good men and the good women? So, so I, I'm a little bit of uh, an uh, amateur uh, academic when it comes to psychology and psychologies of the workplace. And what, what you're, you, I believe you're dallying in there is different um, human types. Um, and it is fair to say a type which many people would view as being quite um, unpleasant is the sort of superhero type. Um, you could probably personify them. I mean, there's, there's no better personification than Donald Trump. Um, uh, Jair Bolsonaro would be a typical one, in, in, again, in politics. There's a number that I've worked um, in, in the orbit of a, a, in a work environment, they have a, a psychology tale which is about the the, the desire for power. Um, they desire to 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 grow their power base for the sake of power, not for the sake of much else. It's they need to have this to be the source and the sink of all all, all things that are important around them. And the people that cope best with them are those that help either inform their power or reinforce their power or cede uh, cede control to them. Um, they can be quite toxic, but when you look at, through time, um, those that have held some of the highest station, that is quite a dominant leadership type. And there is also an element of psych psychopath within them because um, they can switch off the amygdala, they can make you know, very dark decisions very quickly um, without the feeling of pangs of guilt that, that would naturally come uh, you know, with perhaps those of different types. 
But there are other types. There's the warrior type. And I, I talked about Ross McEwen. I, I would put him very firmly in this camp that his only desire, in my view, was to run faster, do better, never to the detriment of others, just so that he got the best out of the organization and the people within it. Just why I always, um, uh, I never quite kept up with Ross, but I always had um, such a high feeling. And then, and then you have leaders who are perhaps more in touch with the feeling side of themselves, poets or damsels um, uh, would be a, a, a rather derogatory term for them of which I probably count myself marginally in one, which is much more trying to understand what's going on, what's the power balance, what's the best way, how do you influence people, how do you give them desire behind purpose, et cetera, et cetera. Why, how do you do something that has meaning and value? Because that in and of, in and of itself is powerful rather than the pulling of power to yourself. And it, and it, and it's in there that, that that perhaps I find myself more comfortable. I sense with you, Jonathan, that's, that's mm -hmm. an area as well for you, but we'd be naive to think that we live in a world where that style is the only one that will ever, that will ever succeed. There are the Elon Musk, there are the Donald Trumps. Um, many of those that get into politics, um, unfortunately have that desire for power rather than for doing good. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I've encountered a few that were good as well. Yeah. Well, I, I want you to talk about the racket in a minute, but uh, it, it is interesting. There's a podcast I recommend people have a listen to, uh, and it's called, I think, The British Scandal. And it's a series of episodes about scandalous thing that's happened uh, in the past. But they pick a current one, which is Boris. And when you look at Boris and the psychology of how his father was and how his father made him think he was the blondest of all the your three children and this kind of stuff and what went on and how he lied and did various things at, at um, escaping from the police when he was at uh, Oxford and things like this. But... Um, it is it is interesting that um, they they think they can get away with it, but they have no remorse. It, it, it literally uh, is this belief in in Boris's case, his ambition was to be prime minister. And that was it. it after that, what, what, he didn't care. He just wanted to be the prime minister. He saw himself as a sort of a Churchill, but but even Churchill had massive faults and flaws jonathan you are so well read and so many books i'm going to I'm, for for some in the audience um they either may not have the time or the inclination to read books I, i'm a sort of halfway in the middle there is a fantastic netflix series um which talks exactly like this which is called the anatomy of a scandal oh really um, yeah and, and the anatomy of a scandal um basically is about um Yes, you might call it, I don't want to do down Oxbridge just because I didn't get into Oxford or Cambridge, but it's a sort of Oxbridge Etonian sort of feel to it and how they, they have very little remorse for what are quite, you know, obviously sinful acts of their past. Mm, no, it, it is very interesting. Right. The racket. What, the racket. What, explain the racket in, in layman's terms so I can understand it. Well, we all do it. OK, so when, when you're trying to um, uh, innocently manipulate an outcome, you effectively have tells, you have ways of doing it. It can be your subtle method of persuasion. That is a relatively innocent form of racket, that um, if I'm keen to um, get permission to go out with my friends on a Friday night and I'm trying to guide my wife to give me support in this endeavour, there are certain things that I will do um, during the week um, to enable that outcome. I'm being very soft with my language because I know my wife may watch this. In fact, she won't. <laughs> <watch it. laughs> um, now, that's a racket, you know, but when it happens amongst a few of you within an organisation, 
e.g. the way you get things done around here is to, I'll use examples which aren't actually true of my past and I haven't seen, but they're quite good examples. It would be actually, do you know the best way to get around, you know, X, Y, Z, so CEO X, Y, Z, well, it's to make sure that you're playing to their ego, you know, that you um, set it up, that they get the win out of it. All of these things are actually forms of manipulation. They're deliberate manipulation, and that's what a racket is. They can feel very innocent. And done well, they can be elegant. Um, unfortunately, um, many rackets are not done well, and they become... Uh, reinforcers of bad behaviors in organizations. They often happen because of a lack of trust. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Thank you. And and it does remind me, I remember reading about that, but I think you described it very elegantly. So let's take all those lessons into your life story. So so I'm really interested in people's life story. I, I find there's so much richness in there. And also for people to learn what worked for you, it might not work for them. But there's always great lessons for the audiences to to take away. So, Stuart, what has shaped you into the leader you are today now as the CEO of the Skipton Group? What events, what people shaped you? If you could just spend, I don't know, five, 10 minutes just giving us a bit of your life story and what shaped you. Sure. So I'm always cautious about five, 10 minutes. So let, let me let, let me try to be brief. Um, my Parents, I'm a product of my parents. Um, uh, they offered a very stable upbringing. Um, not, uh, not an Etonian type upbringing. We grew up relatively humbly in, in, in Glasgow, latterly though less so in the suburbs of Glasgow. And I was the third of three. Um, uh, and if any of my sisters are watching, um, I was materially younger than them. Um, which also gave me the opportunity because dad had earned a bit more money than I was the one that could get to go to university. So it wasn't necessarily any academic gift that gave me that opportunity. It was the fact that perhaps we were more economically able to support me. And I'm eternally grateful for that because it was really academia that that, that, that I um, gained. Uh, I did physics and electronics at university. I met my wife. I became president of the union. I threw everything that I, you know, um, uh, all myself into my years at university came out. I was lucky enough um, to learn how to, you know, um, basically drill past papers well enough to get a first in the, in the combined honours of, of physics uh, and electronics. I had a stagiaire placement with the European Space Agency, uh, which was a um, fascinating experience, um, one of which my liver will never recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, as I say, I, I, I met my... Uh, future wife at university. So it's a hugely important part for me. Um, From being in academia or or, or the European Space Agency, I quickly worked out that I I liked a faster pace, a faster cadence. Um, So I liked, you know, at first I became a consultant doing sort of project work, relatively high profile pieces at quite a young age, um, helping, for example, Centrica enter the electricity market or what was British Gas and into the electricity market by, back in 97. Those types of projects all oriented around data, sort of engineering science approach to problem solving. Um, by hook or by crook, I ended up into my dad's profession. My dad culminated his career as a bank manager in the south side of Glasgow, and I ended up working in financial services. And then uh, a couple of jobs on, I ended up working at his bank, which was RBS. Um, great pride in that. Um, probably, um, uh, probably, probably too much pride. You know, I was coming back a little bit show offy. Um, Dad, I'm back at your bank, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm an executive. 
Um, but he, you know, he always took everything in good grace. Now that's great, except when the bank that you work in and had worked in for two years effectively um, uh, goes insolvent, goes bust. And indeed, if we're honest, worse than that, um, it, it not only went financially insolvent, I think there were elements of conduct through that period which were unacceptable. And people were making choices at RBS at that point. They could either say, well, I wasn't part of it. It was down to X, Y, and Z, Fred Goodwin, da, da, da. Or they could accept their part that they played in taking the salary and be part of the cleanup team. And I made that choice um, because I felt um, that was important to me. I think it was important to, if you like, the legacy a little bit of why I went in in the first place. That was probably the most important professional moment of my life. Most important personal one was meeting my wife at uni. Most important professional one was that one. And at that point, I sort of committed myself to, to really um, not walking past the issues that we'd had as an industry, but facing into them and then vowing to try to do everything that I could in whatever station I had to both then fix the problems, but then build a, a form of financial services that better serves society. Because once you've got your health, Jonathan, ultimately it's your wealth that will decide you know, how you get to live your life and, and executed well uh, financial services can really help you maximize your wealth. It can help you with your everyday spending. It can help you through cost of living crises that we're we're about to go into. Uh, and well-managed finances can also help prepare you for, you know, a long, happy life. Done badly, they can cause huge irreparable damage to people's lives, well, well-being and indeed mental well-being. Um, and I've seen both sides of that, uh, and I wanted to be on the right side of that. So I would say they're the they're the shaping things for me um, over over the course of my career, my life. Yeah, I, I think that's really a fascinating career, and I think particularly few are prepared to to turn in and face in to the fact that the organisation that they took the dollar from uh, went bad. Um, and conduct was not good. It's lovely to see that. I met somebody on holiday, and it was very disappointing. They were part of the team in RBS that were closing down businesses that were struggling, and a lot of money was made by RBS from that. The conduct was not acceptable. And, and he saw nothing in what he'd done. It was always the finger was always pointing elsewhere. And I, I was very disappointed by that. That, that there was he seemed to have learned nothing he'd made a lot of money but he seemed to learn nothing from the destruction that he'd wrought on businesses that had closed down and people's lives and and uh livelihoods had been lost so so thank you for for saying that and and let's go on from that to proudest uh happiest moment and a darkest moment and what you learned from both of those things in life or in in work and, and what the, the the teachings you took from that it's a really good question. Let, let me just reflect so I give a, a, a full answer. And I'm going to start with a dark moment and it'll be professional. I've had many dark moments. We had, unfortunately, um, lost my father-in-law in very unusual circumstances this summer, which has probably um, certainly been one of the darkest. Um, but I'm going to use a professional example rather than a sort of personal one. <laughs> I want to keep this upbeat to some extent. Um, the, the, the professional one was one which um, involved me taking on a role in the um, it was 2011 um, as the chief risk officer at uh, RBS, the retail business, so RBS, not, not West retail business. And it's fair to say that was a period where post the financial crisis, 
some of the conduct crises were coming through, historic behaviours, etc. And my job was to help reset both culturally and from a risk framework perspective, um, uh, the, the, the system and the behaviours. That is hard. It's hard when you're looking at the world often only through one lens, which is a pretty dark lens because you're seeing the problems. You spend most of your time in the problems rather than the natural balance that we all get through, hopefully all get through life where there's some light and some dark. So it was a difficult time. I remember personally um, struggling to sleep as much as I should. I was working longer and later. We just had our second kid, Gregor, um, and um, I wasn't seeing him as much. And, I, and my wife was taking on a, a massive toll of responsibility in the house despite working. And I felt guilty about that, but there was nothing I could do about it. And so I was in a sort of negative spiral of hard work, long work, unable to shut off, and therefore not being my full self um, when it came to getting back uh, at home and being there in the way that I wanted to be. I also, health-wise, you know, the exercise dropped off, probably put on a fair number of pounds that I shouldn't have. And, 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 and actually, I got some help and support to sort of transition myself out of that state. But that was a pretty dark, a dark point. Um, and it was at a time when it should have been such a light point. I was doing, you know, a reasonably um, strong, responsible job. You know, I was very lucky in that. I had a fantastic home life, um, you know, a, a young child and another, you know, a baby. What a fantastic setup. Yeah, I wasn't able to enjoy that. And, 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 and that was, you know, at a certain level indulgent. Yeah. And, and time and again, I, I see this and I think back to my own life. Uh, my daughter's now 28, 29, but I remember when they were tiny, about one, two years old, it was the toughest time. I was in the army. Um, the second one was born and I was shortly afterwards sent away to Northern Ireland on tour. Had to come back early because it just things were just so tough for, for my wife. And, and um, people forget that that time is often when their career's on the up and they've got two small people and both partners often got jobs and things like that. How do you balance it? It's, it's very, very hard. And um, I also want to just do a call out for people who are chief risk officers, because it's a, it's a thankless task. I've got an, another chief risk officer who's trying to be almost like forced out by his organization because he's calling out some of the toxic behavior. They don't like it. They want someone who's just going to, comply and just go yeah that's fine and just tick off but actually the chief risk officer sees all the problems and and can really smell the the change in the wind early on and if i'm thinking of another one as well another chief risk officer where they're really seeing some very toxic behavior and they have to call it out and tell the emperor the ceo he has no clothes he doesn't like to hear that he often it's a he normally the, the big again the big alpha male so uh, congratulations on doing that role, particularly in an organization where you were seeing an awful lot of bad behavior going on. Um, cheering things up slightly. Yeah, yeah. I skipped over the funny story. There must be in your life, Stuart, with your sense of fun. What is the what is the, the story that makes you laugh? And when you think about occasion that, that there was a bit of humor in it. Uh, genuinely, there's so many and, and some of them totally inappropriate for podcast, I, I, you know, in terms of, um, you know, spectacular nights out or other things. I mean, one of the great joys of working at HSBC, which we haven't talked about, is meeting incredibly talented people from all over the world. 
Um, I probably had quite a narrow view on the world growing up, um, spending a lot of time in Britain, back the you know banking in Britain. I had been lucky to travel the world a fair amount, but that's a little bit on a sort of you know a tourist lens as opposed to. But getting to meet and know people from Asia, from 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 uh, Latin America, uh, from America, you just meet incredibly talented people and they share incredible stories. And so there's a huge amount of joy in understanding humanity um, that, you know, the depiction that you might get from certain red top tabloids about good guys and bad guys, it doesn't work like that. And indeed, perhaps even historic views of developing world and, and mature world, the talent, the capability, the leadership styles and skills, you know, the, the ability to execute complex strategy, that isn't a preserve of the West, I can assure you. It, 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 it's a phenomenon of talented people, wherever they're from and whatever their background. So I would say that's been one of my most enjoyable elements as a marginal extrovert, getting to know more people, more cultures. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really is enthralling. I'll give one more example, if I may, Jonathan, because it comes from darkness. One of the times where I've truly felt... Um, a sense of, or two occasions, but both linked, where I've felt a sense of true awe in the teams that have worked for me and with me um, has been in the deepest crises. Um, There was one example where all the systems stopped working at RBS back in 2012. Um, And it really was, I mean, I don't say it flippantly because I know it affected many customers uh, in a negative way. Hopefully they they were repaired to the right level. But actually, the way that everyone rolled their sleeves up against a critical mission, there was no ambiguity. It was get the systems fixed, make sure people aren't out of their pocket. Everything had to go towards that outcome. That was magnificent. And then more recently, with my HSBC team, the response when the lockdown hit as COVID hit, and I know this is true in many organizations, they've never seen such incredible effort, leadership, um, uh, action, I've heard people talk about things that, particularly in places like IT, things that might have taken 18 months, two years being done in 18 days, you know, um, and just because there was just extraordinary clarity about what was important. Um, uh, they are some of the times where I've felt most alive. At work. Mm, mm, great. And, and in those kind of teams, there's a lot of young people coming through and, my like uh, us, like us, Jonathan. Yes, yes, very young, very young. And if I were to take you back to when you were sixteen to eighteen, just before you did go off to university, um, what bit of if you went back and saw yourself back to the future in your DeLorean, uh, what would you say to the young Stuart Hale? This matters. This doesn't. What would you? What would you pick out? Slow down. I would mm-hmm. say to him to slow down. Um, I think only as you get older do you realise that the previous point had so much value in that you rushed through it a little bit fast. I remember rushing through um, uh, the tail end of my school days, which were, you know, I had a good group of friends. Uh, I enjoyed them, but I rushed them through to get to the next thing. Uh, and I, I, I left um, school at what's in Scotland is called um, the hires. Um, you don't have an equivalent in England, but it would basically be fifth form rather than sixth form because I could get into university. I'd, I'd achieved enough to get into university and I was, was in such a rush to get there. My wife, though, um, took the sixth form and I think she got a lot out of that year. So I wish I'd done that. So all of that culminates into, you know, just slow down, I, I enjoy what you're doing rather than be so keen to go on to the next thing. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's really good. 
to slow down. I know I could have slowed down and been less intense, uh, definitely. Though perhaps uh, people would tell me now I could be even less intense now. Um, looking back at your life, uh, it, it's a, an academic question, but if you could change one thing about your life or if you had a crucible moment, what would you have changed or what was the crucible moment that you learned things that you perhaps rather you didn't have that experience? Um, so I'll talk about an experience, but also talk about uh, uh, an overriding emotion. I've been driven by a high degree of anxiety. I, I don't know. I, I see you're a product of your parents and your upbringing. Um, uh, you know, my dad and my mum were always about hard work, about busyness, being busy. Um, uh, I think sometimes you need to lighten the load on busyness and be more thoughtful and, and, and actually take in experience and listen and, you know, just be more reflective. Um, so one thing I would guide my former self would be to strongly coach at a higher degree of reflection and less action. Mm. Um, in terms of experiences, what would I not have done that I should have done? Um, oh, there are so many. I, I, listen, you should get my wife to answer that question. She would come up with a list in, in seconds. But let me go for go for a big one. Um, I think, actually, I'm going to make it flippant because I think we need to lighten it a little bit. I watched Top Gun, Jonathan. This will appeal mm. to you. Uh, I think it was about 14 uh, when it came out. And I immediately thought, I have to be Maverick. I, I, I simply must be Maverick because there can't be any cooler human on earth. Um, and so I went to Queen Street in Glasgow and applied to the RAF um, to go for a bursary um, to be a pilot. And then I went down to Biggin Hill, um, had a five day, this is when I was 16, had a five day um, uh, course or interrogation. I managed to get through the first two days, which were all about hand-eye coordination and skills. The latter two days were, were about teamwork and problem solving, etc., left that feeling, you know, I've done well, feel feel good, and got the letter up. I'd been offered the bursary to be a navigator. No one wanted to be Goose. Goose died. So for me, I then joined the University of Glasgow and Strathclyde Air Squadron, and um, uh, about 40 seconds into my first um, tandem flight, I vomited. Um, my second flight, I vomited. I worked out I didn't have the stomach for this whatsoever. Um, and so it was a dream wasted, uh, would be my view. Mm, very interesting. And and I think life is full of experiences and, and life is in the transitions, the things you don't do or the things haven't worked out. And uh, sometimes you're saved. You're saved from some things. And sometimes some things have a huge impact on you. Thank you for that. We, we're going to go. We've chatted so much already that we're, we're most of the way through our uh, our program, but but I, I wanted to touch with one two tips on each of these areas as we go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, the work that Lee and I did about what makes high performing individuals and teams. Uh, what is it that inspiring leaders uh, bring on in other people as much as what they do themselves? If we're going to go for moral quotient, we've talked a lot about integrity and and the lack of it in in many leaders and politicians we see today. But what would be your top tip about uh, moral integrity? that, that uh, worked for you and you'd recommend it for others? I would never, ever ask anyone to do something I wasn't willing to do myself. That doesn't mean I would have the skills to do it. Um, I'm meaning that I would never put someone in a position um, where they would be asked to do something, be it a specific project or be it a restructuring or be it... Um, 
any aspect of business that I couldn't in all conscience believe that if I was in their circumstance, I would do the same. Um, and I think the more that you can you can use that sort of lens, uh, I think it's really important. However, I will give one very tangible example. There was a piece of work that was conducted at RBS um, post the financial crisis, and it was guided by um, uh, a chap who's called, uh, self-titled, a corporate philosopher. But it was a yes check. It was how to re-empower an organization, but with the right moral fabric. And there was five questions on a card which was handed out and, and, and educated into every RBS NatWest employee, Ulster employee. Um, and it was basically a, a checklist of questions when you were confronted with a difficult choice or a difficult situation. And there were simple questions. They were, you know, would you be proud to do this to any of your family? Um, how would this show up in a negative headline in the Daily Mail? Um, would you be proud enough to put this on your CV? Um, and then the final one, which uh, okay, there was a fourth one as well, which was um, along those lines. And then there was a final one, which was, if in doubt, have a conversation with others. And, and, and those five things actually still to this day, I think about that a lot because you're often caught with conflicting situations. I mean, in, when you work in a lender, there are often circumstances that can arise where you perhaps can't give the lending that someone needs or wants. And their circumstance can be tragic but it's still the right thing to do. Or there can be situations where you have given the lending and then the people's circumstances have changed. And so, you know, there are difficult to a degree moral questions in some of some of these aspects, um, strategies that you have to pivot on because circumstance change. We, we were mm. talking about um, David Marquette and, and, and his more recent book, Leadership as a Language. You know, you have to alter. And most alterations as a leader have consequence. Some can have real negative consequence on other humans. You have to face into these decisions. So you have to have something of a moral fabric about how to how to deal with it. I think so. And, I, and I'm sure it was Roger Steer who I've had on the podcast. Oh, Roger. Yes. I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to. I didn't want to. Name no, him. no, no. I, I'm, I'm pleased you called Roger out. And we've, we've been good friends for some years. And he taught me a lot, trained me up in his approach, which I find uh, incredibly helpful. Um, so next one round of the eight components is purpose. Uh, we talked about Simon Sinek and meaning and purpose. Uh, what gives your life purpose? Why, why are you doing what you do uh, as CEO at the Skipton Group? It, it comes back to the conversation I had with myself um, and then subsequently with others at RBS. I think financial services really, really matters. And done well, it can really enable someone's um, or, or community's life um, uh, you know, where where you choose to lend and how you choose to lend there, how you choose to support people, how you choose choose to inform them. Sometimes it's as simple as how you present facts and information so they can fully understand their own circumstances. These things can change lives. They mm -hmm. really can. Once you've got your health, your wealth really dictates it. So it's a very meaningful career if it's done right. Yeah, that's that that that's key. Yeah, no, lovely. And and you talked about health and wealth. You mentioned it a couple of times. And you also talked about that time in a low point in your life when you had so much pressure on small child and you weren't looking after yourself, your own health and well-being. What have you done? I get the sense that you have since then. But what have you done to look after a top tip for mental health and a top tip for your physical health that, that is working for you? I'll start with physical. It's perhaps more easy and more obvious. Um actually being active. Um, uh, the, the second time where I, where I let my physical health go um, was actually at the start of lockdown where I was 
14 to 16 hours in front of a screen like this. Um, and while I was eating well and I wasn't, um, you know, there was no excesses in my life, my level of staticness was huge. Um, and so actually I wasn't getting fresh air. I wasn't getting out. And for everyone, it's different. Some may enjoy jogging. Um, uh, some may enjoy simply walking. I think there's an element of just getting out of uh, your your frame to, you know, enjoy nature a little bit it is hugely helpful for physical well-being. And by the way, also mental well-being. I think mental well-being, there's two tips. First of all, um, what we do um, can be very, very important um, and consequential on people. Um, but we should never, ever um, do two things. We should never um, take ourselves too seriously. We should take our work and, and, and our purpose seriously. We should never take ourselves seriously. And we should never do things to the detriment of our longer term health because it's not sustainable. So if you find yourself sort of slipping into that position, of, I'll just push through on this for another two months and then I'll be fine, I'll be out the other side. I would take a stop at that sentence and say there will never be the end of that two months. You are basically foregoing something you will not get back. Um, and so therefore make a different choice. It's all about choice. And I'm looking on your wall and people listening to this uh, on different podcast channels won't know what it says. But would you read out that sign behind you? Um, you have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. I love that one. It's a well-known philosopher called Dr. Seuss. <laughs> well, it's a great one. And uh, yeah, he was he was a philosopher with many, many uh, wise words in there. Um, the next one round there, thank you for that, was emotional and social intelligence, EQ. Um, IQ was always the thing that many financial services organizations, uh, including the one you've probably just taken over, uh, value, IQ, clever people, smart people, good first class honors degree, uh, whatever it might be. Um, but they didn't really rate EQ that much. But then perhaps about 20 years ago, EQ came in and people found, and we found in our research that um, particularly with working with Dr. Ruven Baron, who did the work with um, Daniel Goldman around EQ, that IQ accounts for 6% for of your success, but much more important, EQ accounts for 30% of your success. And the other elements that we're talking about allow for the other 64 for the remainder. But um, what's your top tip on EQ that you learned over the years that you'd pass on to people listening? It's often not what you say, it's what people hear. And how people hear what you say depends on their context, on their circumstance. And it's as obvious as you know some of the memes about Chinese whispers. You may have great intent, you may have great IQ, you may have great plans, you may have um, uh, you know, fantastic strategies, but if you've got lousy timing, really bad bed you know take bedside manner uh, and and are, are quite you know inarticulate in how you describe things then please don't expect um, that people will pick up your clever smart you know genius ideas so it's, it's a relatively simple one I think it's that you know you have to communicate not just tell yeah yeah, and, and one of my old bosses in the army, and, and I was in communications, rural signals for, for many of my years. Communications is not what you transmit, it's what's received. And, and we think just because we're transmitting that everybody gets the, the message they don't. 
And certainly the number of times you need to communicate a certain message, something in the region of eight to 20 times, uh, and you think they'll get it first time, but they're really not. Because if you worry what people think about you, they're not thinking about you at all. They're thinking about themselves and their own situations. CQ is the next one around, collaborative, cognitive and cultural intelligence. And it involves a lot of diversity, equality and inclusion. What's your top tip about um, collaborative intelligence, about getting people to work together and in, be more inclusive? Be permanently fascinated, be permanently interested in others and in team and team dynamics. You know, don't take it for granted. Um, have fun with it. We, we talked about one of the things that's been most fun. It's been engaging with different people of different backgrounds, styles, ethnicities, um, sexual preferences. I love all of that. I, I'm intrigued by it. I'm like a social anthropologist. Um, I, 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 I do it not as a voyeur, not some weird way, but genuinely to get the most out of situations for myself and, and for teams and for outcomes. Yeah, I, I think being a, a social anthropologist is something I've learned over the years, mainly through my my failing of, of sort of some poor relationships in which I wanted to get things better. And so I studied and studied to try and improve the situation. And in the process, learned a lot about myself. I'm about to go on the Hoffman process on the um, shortly in a couple of weeks time, which I'm away for about nine nights. Uh, I'm no phones or anything like that. And I'll be learning about myself. And as you say, the impact of your primary caregivers. You, you were talking about your own parents. Uh, mine was my mother. Uh, my father was two and a, I was two and a half when my father was killed. And so perhaps my mother and grandmother helped bring me up. And, and boarding school and military and things like that all have a massive impact on me. But everybody is massively shaped by their primary caregivers. And then the partner they choose to be with has many of the traits of the parents that you left, whether they were good or bad, you, your amargo, uh, uh, sort of image you look for is in the shape of those. So your present behavior is shaped by your past and we can't run away from our past. It really is in us, in our behaviors um, and we need to be resilient. And so top tip on resilience is the next one round uh, of the eight. What, what, what uh, have you found has made you uh, successful as a leader through resilience? This is one I, I think it's really important to have a bit of humility on. I'm not as good as I should be in resilience. Um, uh, and I want to work on that in the in the job I'm going into. And some of the things I'm thinking about working on are things like how to manage my time um, so that I'm not permanently reacting to the, to the latest thing, that I have enough reflection time, enough self-time to be able to absorb to, to deal with any of the negative emotions and process them away so I can then go back with a slightly more purposeful stance. Um, that, that's a big thing that I want to work on. Um, the final tip on the tip I would give that I have learned to date um, is more around not taking the circumstance, not holding on too tight, not taking circumstances so seriously that they dictate your mood and, 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 and your being for a period thereafter. You have to be able to hold important things lightly to be able to deal with them best. Oh, uh, beautiful. I, I've two, two stories that followed from that, really. One, one is when I was taking a, a senior executive to meet his CEO to get some 360 feedback on how he was doing as part of our coaching. Uh, and he said, yeah, I need to, I need to manage my time better, as you, you said. And the CEO said, no, you're wrong. And the guy looked a bit puzzled. I said, I'm wrong. 
He said, it's not about managing your time. It's about allocating your time. We all have the same amount of time. It's how you choose to allocate it, your limited resources, and time is one of them. Are you giving enough time to your family? Are you giving enough time to the things that matter? What are the top three things that will make you successful this year? Have you made enough time on it? So that was the allocation, the word allocation of time rather than management of time, I thought was profound. And the second one is the one of, as you talk about, not holding things too tight, uh, holding things lighter, this this idea of non-attachment. And there's the old Zen the old Zen monk who has this famous vase that's very expensive and he loves it dearly and everybody else admires it. But every time people look at it and say it's beautiful, they said, yes, but but it's broken. And they go, no, no, it's perfect. And he goes, it's broken. Anyway, one day one of his friends picks it up to, to look and admire it and, and it slips from his fingers, his fingers are wet and it smashes and shatters all over the floor. And the guy said, see, I told you it was broken. Um, he just wasn't that, worried about the fact and um i think that's important that we don't get i i've been often too attached to my identity uh to a job to a thing working out the way i wanted it to work out and it didn't work out that way and oh no but actually if you're less attached to it okay um you know uh it's just what happens let's move on to the next thing uh brand um what have you learned from 360, Stuart? I mean, imagine, you know, in banking, you get some pretty good development. What, what have you learned from 360? And if there was one area that you're working on at the moment that you remember from your 360, what would that be that you want to be even better at? Um, ears and mouth in the correct ratio, um, yeah. particularly as you become more senior. You don't hold the ideas of a company in your head. Um, you basically crowdsource. To crowdsource, you've got to listen. Um, so I, 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 I've always been an enthusiast. I bring energy to situations. I've always felt and always had reflection. I bring energy and purpose and drive to organisations, and that can help them achieve great things. But the shadow of that, and it's quite a, a, a meaningful shadow, is um, that you maybe don't give enough oxygen and air to others. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a big part that that I'm going to. Uh, listen, I've been given that feedback since age of 16, so it's a work in progress. Maybe by the time I retire, I might have made, made the strides I want. Yeah, that's a lovely one. Legacy, final one of the eight before we go on to executive teams and favourite book and top tip. Uh, what in a sentence would be the legacy you'd like to leave from your time at the Skipton Group? I'm going to extend that because I don't want to narrow it to the Skipton Group, um, not because that's not a worthy a worthy part. I, actually, maybe I should answer it with regard to the Skipton Group. I want it to have fulfilled its potential as a modern mutual. I want it to have joined up, you know, the different component businesses to really do things meaningfully that, that affects importantly society as we face into the challenges of climate change, the challenges of strained finances and economics. There's a lot we can do and a lot we can help with. Yeah, beautifully put. Executive teams, you you've been uh, you've worked for Fred um, and other people. When you see a toxic team, and you've been in a few, um, what is the one action you've seen people take that turned it around into a high performing team the quickest and Ooh, the most, and and the, and the most sustainably? Oh, it, 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 there's a very clear example for me here, which um, is where they brought in help of a psychologist, believe it or not, into a team setting, um, where the mirror was thrown up, um, often in quite a 
not a um, not an aggressive way, but a very insightful way. And it basically offered into the teams perhaps some truths, some honesties that they 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 they, they then couldn't walk past. Mm, that's brilliant. No, okay. We talked about David Marquet. Uh, you very much liked his 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 first book, Turn the Ship Around. Uh, we also talked about um, uh, Horst Schultz um, from the Ritz Carlton, uh, who we're hoping to have on this series with Excellence Wins, which is a great book, which I've Fantastic. enjoyed listening to. Um, what what would be another favourite book, and why should people read it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, starts with why Simon Sinek is is a great book for for, for modern leadership, of course. But I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for a very alternative one, and it's not for everything that's in it, but it's about time and using your time well. There's a, there's a chap called Tim Ferriss, and he wrote a book which um, many business leaders would hate. Um, it's called The Four Hour Week. And to give you a sort of vignette on on Tim and why that book's, I think, really quite important, he has um, exceeded at optimizing his life in a way that is just extraordinary. So his insight comes from very early days working in telesales, whereby he got in in the morning very early and he was basically outbounding to CEOs uh, to to sell services of some description. Can't remember what, doesn't matter. Um, And he got in early uh, between about half seven and half eight. And then he also worked between about half five and, and seven. And he got more sales conversions than anyone else. And between 8.30 and 4 in the afternoon, he did absolutely nothing. He actually went home and he was sacked for being so lazy. But what he worked out was, if you want to get hold of the CEO and actually have a penetrative penetrative sales conversation with the buyer, then don't go at the times when the gatekeeper, e.g. the secretary or, or whoever else are there, because they're trained to basically keep you away. So they said, it's, he basically said, it's pointless. You're making me spend pointless time. I'm not doing it. And so he's viewed his whole life through avoiding spending pointless time. Mm. And, and there's there's something, I mean, it, I would never go to the extremes that he talks of in that book, but there's something hugely liberating in just taking this very alternative view on busyness. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think uh, busy, 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 dead. And um, we're human beings, how we be with people, not human doings, big pile of doo-doo. You do this, you do that. Big pile of doo-doo, as the South Africans would call it. So um, thank you, Stuart. This has been fantastic. We're now on to the, the final two-minute top tip. If you'd kindly introduce yourself and your organization and then give us your two minute top leadership tip and we'll then wrap up and i'll chat with you when we finish recording hi my name is stuart Hare. i am uh, the ceo of the skipton group um, my two minute top tip is really as a leader don't think you're in charge of everything you've got three core tasks in front of you your first task is to help people understand what's the purpose or the mission that you're all on Give as much clarity as you can. Spend time on that. Be repetitive. Build goals and expectations and processes around that so that everyone in your organization can understand the role they play in that that context. The second job is all just about capability. Get the right team around you. Motivate them in the right way. Give them the right structured coaching and the right experiences. Help them challenge themselves to achieve even more than they thought. And then finally... Make it sustainable by making it fun. 
People need to have a bit of fun in their lives. I'm at the point of giving up watching the news because it pervades such misery every single day and every single week. We need more than that. We need something that keeps us going. So my top tip would be, as a leader, just remember you really only have three roles, setting the context, building the capability and driving the motivation of your organization. Fantastic. Well, Stuart Hare, CEO of the Skipton Group, thank you very much for being on this week's Inspiring Leadership. I found it fascinating. We could have chatted uh, for many, many more minutes. But thank you. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.